the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as the Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering how problematic is that certainly later in life when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together and one is the spender risk taker combination. The other is the saver security saker. Wow, that can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. That and you're I, not kidding. And, oh, and I would imagine the earlier in life the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that. You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract, but then you get married and opposites attack. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or, or decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen. And then they, the conflict happens all the time. The more opposite you are, the more challenges you're going to have. And you are so correct. If you can understand this as a young child, it's so fun. Our, our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand what their money personalities and say things to us like like mom you're a risk taker so don't you want to do that you know it's amazing to us how at such young age how kids can learn these things and think about how uh, the next generation of marriages how much healthier they can be because they understand this now we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite because most of the time we're attracted to it as a matter of fact oftentimes it makes you a better person it's a more exciting relationship the, the thing is, though, is if you realize this, and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from, and you're not putting the person down, you're, you're, you're trying to deal and understand their many personalities. Now, now, some listening right now might be thinking, well, this, this makes sense, okay, so it, there's not a prohibition against it, but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite, we married the equal. But I have to wonder, Scott, if that is not we're out with problems as well. For example, if you get two spender risk takers together, my goodness, that's <laughs> that's yeah. going to mean there's never any money in the house. That's or right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that three point trillion dollars. <laughs> yes, in, it in will. Your debt. So yeah, yep, and, and that's right. that's a great point mm -hmm. that um, we need to make. We we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment, and they'll be like, "We have four money personalities. Are we going to survive?" And we say, "Absolutely," because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have really positive points of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money. Oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money. So not only are they getting themselves in check, 
but they're also understanding who their spouses are. That's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money-healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are much, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so it's just really important to know that uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a, a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when we found that 80% of, of couples were married to their money opposite, we weren't surprised at all mm -mm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship, that once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. And once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good. Mom and dad don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it. And then your kids can trust. You. And this and also so means that we have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important because what you're really doing is setting a, a foundation not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it, that suddenly becomes a very important discussion. Absolutely. And, and what we find is, uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their, their conversations um, about allowance. So what you've really got really to figure out is your kid's money personality so that you have, so that, that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So for instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender. And at about the age of, of um, eight, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from five to eight, five to nine, we, didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make a, a decision or figure out how, who our kids' money personalities are. So what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups. We started coming up with questions, and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities. So like a big one was Easter candy. We watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy. Some saved it, some consumed it quickly, some traded it, some had a plan on their consumption, and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage 
was we put a code on the back of the book. And we actually created a money personality assessment from 5 to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18. And we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. And so parents can actually buy the book, scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities Talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities um, for our teenagers. Yeah, the give me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology. I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes, having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids but you're actually speaking the child's language. And, and you know, what I love about this is it, there, there, there's a stroke, a stroke of genius here, uh, <laughs> Bethany and Scott, there really is, because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, right. uh, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some yeah. parents understand yep. you have a child, and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not yep. get the message through. Right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no, you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not yep. work for others. Absolutely. So this, this, this one-size-fits-all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money, I think the clear results of how, how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we, we manage money as a people, but listen, 17 heading toward $18 trillion debt, I want to tell you something there too. And, you know, let's, let's talk after the break about the whole issue, for example, of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance. Now, when I was growing up, my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance. Um, he said that uh, he was going to take sort of a, an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat, where you get money from the government, you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out, talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us tonight. They are the money couple, the new book, Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage. We're talking about Quite frankly, how to prevent, in large part, a huge disaster once they get older adults, whether it be an impact on their finances or ultimately on their marriage, understanding your child's unique money personality and then being able to educate your child based on that personality is really the key of what we're speaking about today. And and one of the ways in which, of course, that can and should be done is this whole matter, of Bethany and Scott, of the way we teach our kids the value of money through their 
allowance. Now, yeah. as I mentioned, Dad had the belief that he wanted me to be a Roosevelt Democrat. He thought that it was okay if I got money from him, the government, as he formed it. Uh, but I had to work for it. And, of course, the issue of entitlement today is a major problem in our society. So how do we go about managing the whole issue of allowances based on our child's unique money personality? Well, that's a really great question. And let's just start with just the overall approach and what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to accomplish is having our children understand the basic concepts of, of money, how much it's worth, and how to and where to spend it or save it. And so what one of the things that we've discovered is that if you teach children at a very young age, it's, I mean, you can start as, li- as young as three, and you just give them $3 a week. They don't have to work for it yet. You just give them $3 a week. And with these $3, they have to put, they have three bins, if you will, $1 in to save, $1 in to spend, and $1 in to give, and giving is to charity or your church. And what happens is you want to train those neurons, if you will, those giving neurons and those saving neurons and those spending neurons, and you want to train them at a very young age that that money is something that you do something with and you need to be intentional with it. So again, at a very young age, not connected with chores, just you just give it to them. Again, to train that a third, a third, a third. Now, once they turn, like right around eight or nine, it depends on the child and how mature they are, now what you do is they start earning it. And the way that they earn it, and this is where as parents, you have to sit down and make a list of things that are above and beyond normal everyday chores. I don't know about you, but I think there are some, a lot of things that you do around your household that's just part of being a family. I mean, you don't get paid for it. It's just you got a roof over your head. This is what we do as a family to keep this house running. But if you're creative as a parent, you know, maybe it's cleaning out a pond or it's um, cleaning up a walkway or it's pulling, you know, excessive amounts of weeds or I don't know. You can just be very creative as parents and you come up with additional activities and things that they do that now they earn that money. A great example is um, our child, we had something that, that he was doing and we told him that this particular job was going to be worth $5. Well, I mean $10. But he, you know what? He didn't work hard. And, you know, he's getting into those teenage years and starting to just kind of mosey around and go real slow. And I'm like, nope, sorry, all right, paid just got docked, 5 bucks. And he's like, what? And it's like, so you're using money to show They're earning money. They're not just getting it. They're earning it. But here's the wonderful thing. Now they've earned it, but you know what their first reaction is because you trained those neurons? They take any money they earn, and they put a third in to spend, a third in to give, and a third in to save because those neurons have been trained. Then once they start to earn money through their jobs, when they start to get to be 16, 17, 18, they get that money, and they start doing that same thing because that's just what's ingrained in them. So taking it in ages and stages and not being, there's so many parents we see, well, I didn't have to, I had to work for any money that I got. And, you know, just having these, un, you know, putting our childhood into it. Listen, parenting has changed. Times have changed. There's so much more that our children can buy now than they used to be able to. And if we aren't intentional with this and using and inside of our home being the training ground for this, 
we're going to raise a whole nother generation that doesn't understand money. And this is absolutely key and crucial. So we are just excited to see so many parents applying this approach and just seeing great results, great results. And let's say you start late. Let's say it's, you have a 15-year-old and you haven't done any money management, you haven't talked about money at all, and da-da-da-da. You know what? It is never too late to start. And if you want to tell your 15-year-old, here's three bucks, and you're going to take a third, they'll be perfectly happy to take it. But you'll be, again, training that, those neurons to save, spend, and give. We appreciate the insights today, and I, I think for parents getting this conversation started, uh, Bethany, is critically important. And again, part of this is going to go back to the heart of not just wanting to be good parents and give our children the proper foundation necessary to be not only economically successful, but as we've suggested today, relationally successful as they grow up in life. I guess then that leads to the other important question, and that is, where do we start? Uh, how, how do we go about getting this dialogue started, understanding their personalities? And, you know, if you have six kids, you may wind up with an, an interesting combination of a different money personalities there. And then, of course, at the same time, you know, teaching our kids things like the art of compromise and, and the dangers of entitlement and the connection between risk and reward. How do we start this conversation, Scott? Yeah, well, the, the first thing is to go get the book <laughs> because the book out just outlines everything so easy for parents. We did not want this to be a complicated, hyper-involved book. We wanted to be able to have parents say, oh, okay, I've got, a, I've got an 8-year-old and I have a 17-year-old, and to be able to bounce around the book and really use it as a resource. The great thing about the book is that when you get the book, you can scratch off the code and back, and it gives you those five different money personality assessments that you can have your kids take right away. So it knowledge, takes 10 minutes. Yeah, it's not 10 minutes long. at the most. Um, knowledge is power, and if we can just take some time to get to know our kids, we're going to be able to have the conversations that they're going to be able to hear. So I'd say, you know, you can get the book at major booksellers. Um, it's in Christian bookstores all over the place, and it's called The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. If parents want to know what their money personalities are, they can go to themoneycouple.com, and they can take that assessment for free. Now, that assessment is only going to be for free for about another two or three weeks um, before we start charging for that assessment. But if parents want to know who they are so that they can understand where maybe they're seeing differently uh, than their kids are when it comes to money, we've still got that at themoneycouple.com. It's a free assessment. It'll take you 10 minutes, and you can you know, buy, the, buy the five money conversations to have with your kids right there as well. Excellent. And the book is available through, I guess, the usual suspects, Amazon, and directly through your website as well. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And like I said, it's at most, in most Christian bookstores as well. Excellent. Again, the book is called simply Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Every Stage, and um, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through their website at themoneycouple.com. That's themoneycouple.com. Dot com. And our thanks to Scott and Bethany Palmer for being with us tonight and offering those insights. The book, by the way, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. W Publishing is actually the cover, but um, Thomas Nelson is the, is the main publisher. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we 
introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and pledge their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, and I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have a hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program. Craig, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a, an experience in life where amazingly a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they? Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle and uh, we think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature. This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to most realistic and long-term marriages, and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after, that once we say I do and the ring exchange has taken place, that it, it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble. But most don't most couples, when they go into this, really think that, that they've got all they need to be successful? I think they do, Craig. I think that's a common assumption that people make. Um, and I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in, and then we're not so happy, and we begin to question if we're not careful having gotten married, and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us. Hmm. Failed or incomplete expectations. That that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring, if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching, overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble, doesn't it? That their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them, is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it? I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's 
unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to. Let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, (laughs) wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who were busy uh, writing their marriage vows uh, to read the book and and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see this take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake, how that my husband so-and-so, my wife so-and-so, she completes me. And that flowerly language sounds lovey-dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, doctor? It does. Um, You know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite, and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs, and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep. And that's pretty uh, pretty unrealistic, too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs, to put that kind of pressure on a spouse, to have that level of expectation, I mean, it, it would seem to me you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin. Well, we are, and, uh, you know, I I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met. And and I think he, my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse, or a best friend, or anyone else down here on earth. We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, and I I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after, or how that uh, my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs, and it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through 
why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Life Life continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor. And you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One of the, one of the lies that is oft repeated, and I think it's our, sort of our attempt to try and, and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage, so to speak, in our marriage, and that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem. You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way. Uh, it is my spouse who's got more issues. They are the more troubled person. They have the bigger plank in their eye than I do in mine. And that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to. Uh, it's pretty, uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh, we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being. And... Um, it's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues. Uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie. Craig, the, uh, the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage. Um, and that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving, entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it. There's also this notion that we oftentimes... um We'll try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, well, 
you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or certain uh, uh, failures or faults. But at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has, I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me. Yes, I uh, in that chapter I mentioned the uh, cartoon Popeye <clears throat> because one of his more iconic lines was "I am who I am," and um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for I don't want you to push me to change, I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no-growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if my if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems. You know, I have to admit, uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family. And uh, we were really told, you know, this is the way you clean things. This is the way you organize things. You need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it, and uh, this is the right way to do it. So when I married my wife, Holly, 35 years ago, I had a pretty uh, stubborn attitude about, you know, you need to be like me. I'm the one who knows how to do it right. And if you're not doing it the way I do it, then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust. And... Uh, you can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that. Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger. And uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as they're as they're suggesting that um, a spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse, that this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the, the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God. I think so, and uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um, I think a lot of us do think that forgiveness has to be earned and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive. And so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody. We are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. 
Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But And, of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly he wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto his creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with his creation. But we also have to recognize that on God's terms, it requires repentance. Yes, and that's a a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved, but the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself if you think you guys can reconcile if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong that's been hurtful to the other person. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, Dr. Just Abbreviated DR, DrChrisThurman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.